This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. A conversation with the greatest living British Jewish novelist, none other than Howard Jacobson. We'll be talking to him. Also, an update on everything going on in Israel and looking ahead to the crowning of a new, but also quite old, king. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Unit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. I hear you have a new king in the making, Mr. Friedland. I love the way I have, as if he is <laughs> going to take the oath to me personally. <laughs> Although I say that, you know, this new wrinkle on the coronation of King Charles III, which is hours away. We haven't had one of these for 70 years. The new tweak on the ceremony is they've asked everyone to make an oath to him. Normally coronation, right? The king swears to serve, you know, the church and uh, and the crown. But in this case, they've asked the public, his subjects, to, you know, reverse the compliment and return the compliment, rather, and to make an oath to him. And that has caused a little bit of a backlash. You know my small little corner of fellow uh, campaigners for an elected head of state. I'm, it's a very niche position. Um, but we got a bit more support this week because of this slightly chutzpah request from the king that people should say an oath to him. I don't know if people will do that, but obviously, as you can imagine, the world leaders are flying in here. I was just walking right in the area where the ceremonies will take place yesterday, and they are bedecked already in huge signs welcoming the new king and queen, flags, obviously, even the slogan, happy and glorious hanging on Admiralty Arch. So the whole city is gearing up to host the ceremony, which will be watched, will be told, by hundreds of millions around the world. And, you know, British Jewish community pretty cheery about it. Charles has been, by all accounts, a great friend and ally to British Jews. And so, yes, bunting and celebration in all parts of the kingdom and even old curmudgeons like me are thinking, well, it's very nice that to have a national moment. <laughs> the thing is, um, Britain does pageantry better than anyone else on the planet. But don't you kind of wish sometimes that there'd be some drama, like some, you know, unscripted fun? Like I was thinking of George the Fourth and his wife or his estranged wife banging on Westminster Abbey's doors and trying to get in. He didn't let her in. This is, this like is Caroline demanding to exactly. be queen. Exactly. That's like, that's drama, man. You know what I mean? Like something like that and not like everyone trying to read, you know, quotes from Harry's book, what he said about Camilla. You know, it's just not not enough. I, I wanted some real drama. But you said everyone around the world will be watching. I'll just tell you the Channel 12 News. Not that I'm trying to plug in our podcast, but um, eight hours straight on Saturday will be our broadcast. Isn't really? that amazing? On that a, is an amazing. Israeli network. So it gives is. it eight hours. And I have already been a guest on your colleagues' airtime. Uh, Israel is the one time they're interested in Britain, we always know, <laughs> is anything royal. But your request for drama, I have been asked that question, you know, what should we be looking out for? And exactly, it is the unscripted moment. I don't think we'll have a would-be queen pounding on the doors. But this is the moment I, I refer people to. In the wedding of Harry and Meghan, the photographs were not in the papers the next day were not of the ritual or the kiss or the you know speech from the archbishop, a sermon. They were rather from the side eye glance from Kate to Camilla. The term side eye then new to me, but now uh, forever associated with that moment where she appeared to be sort of going, can you believe this? During one of the, you know, as she saw, over-the-top moments in the ceremony. So those are the moments everyone will be looking for. They'll be thinking, who's sitting next to Andrew? Who got that hospital pass? Is Harry with anyone? And all that. that it's soap opera. But you've got to lean into it. People enjoy it for that reason. Yes. And when you think of uh, what the king was for when his mother uh, went through this coronation, you have that famous picture of him looking quite bored we should admit it's not the most interesting and fascinating ceremony in the world, but still, it's nice. I agree. I agree. Yeah, um, I mean, and and the quite yeah, no, people will love it. Whether it is quite the sort of epic moment that 1953 was, I've been thinking, writing about this a bit. I think there is such a difference 
And I'm not just pandering to you because you're the Shakespeare scholar in this conversation, but there is such a difference between crowning a young queen, as happened in 1953, and crowning an old king. And he is the oldest king by a mile. I mean, the previous youngest new monarch was 65 years old when they took the throne. He's 74. Mm. And that's significant. But the reason I mentioned Shakespeare is there is a whole lot of sort of associations of old king in the folk memory in this country. Mm. You know, obviously, King Lear, people know about, you know, more up to date, the madness of King George, you know, old kings are associated often with being frail, erratic, arbitrary, you know, there's a whole sort of ba- lot of baggage he's going to have to overturn. But also, as you will know, in Shakespeare, there are some benign, mellow kings in A Winter's Tale and The Tempest and so on. So uh, all of that will be, you know, below the conscious level, but going on a bit uh, in the ceremonies. You mentioned his uh, connection, his very strong connection to the Jewish community. So Chief Rabbi uh, Ephraim Irvis will be part of the ceremony. He will be walking there, obviously. It's a Saturday coronation on a Saturday. So that's uh, also uh, an important uh, thing to note. And thank you for mentioning Shakespeare. That's always nice when you do that. It's also building up for our great uh, British writer, Harold Jacobson, soon in our uh, conversation later in the podcast. Shall we go on to earthly matters like we, Israeli politics a little should, bit? A little we bit. should. You are, I am the Lord's spiritual in this conversation. <laughs> you're the Lord's temporal. You know, all this language you're going to get in the coronation. So let's absolutely go to earthly matters and your neighborhood and how it's all playing out. So this week uh, saw, uh, first of all, we should say, a flare-up uh, between Israel and Gaza. This flare-up was caused by the death of Khader Adnan, a Palestinian from the Islamic Jihad who died on a hunger strike in an Israeli prison. About 100 rockets fired then from Gaza to Israel. It seems like this flare-up uh, has ended, but does remind us, again, that as Israel is um, in the shadow of an internal strife, it seems like, its enemies are trying to poke the bear. We've had, uh, you know, in recent uh, weeks, shooting from uh, Lebanon, now this, all kinds of sort of indicators that uh, Israel's enemies are are, are testing the waters. But uh, let's talk about the flare-ups in the coalition, and there were two of those this week. First of all, uh, Minister Meir Polish of United Torah Judaism saying quite bluntly that if Netanyahu will not give the ultra-Orthodox what they want, and what they want is a law that exempts, officially exempts ultra-Orthodox from uh, serving in the military, he can go home. That was the quote. The other um, skirmish was between Netanyahu and Ben Gvir. Ben Gvir was not invited to a meeting about national security. He is the minister of national security. And then this sort of, I don't know, exchange between uh, adults happened in which uh, Netanyahu said Ben Gvir doesn't have to stay in the government if he doesn't want to. Ben Gvir saying he can fire me if he wants to. I wouldn't read too much into these little skirmishes. At the end of the day, what's keeping this coalition together at this moment is the fact that they don't have anywhere to go. Neither side, right? Not the Netanyahu side, not the Ben Gvir, not the United Torah Judaism. But I would kind of try and look at the bird's eye view of this. And to say, I think I said this to you a few weeks ago already, but that Netanyahu really is stuck. He's in a position he doesn't like to be. Because the classic Netanyahu would be the middle ground in his own coalition. There are people pulling him from the right and people pulling from the left. And he would play the game, take someone out of the coalition, bring someone in. He can't do any of that. He can't really move forward with this legislation because the streets are burning up and the protests and the financial pressure, everything we've been talking about in recent weeks and the international pressure. He can't do that. If he doesn't move forward, there's a huge, we saw this last week, a huge protest for uh, this reform. Essentially, this protest was against Netanyahu himself for not moving forward. And he can't play a game anymore because he can't bring Ben ben Gantz into his coalition. Ben Gantz has more political power than he does at this moment in the polls that we we see. And he can't say, okay, you know what, I'm going to elections because he's not going to win. So he is very much stuck in a situation and it doesn't look, you know, very good. I'm not saying that the government is falling apart next week, but it's not a good sign what we're saying. I'm very glad you mentioned the protests. They were so interesting because they were written up outside the country as, you know, pro-government protests, pro-reform. And I looked at them and thought, that's not so helpful for him because it's, yes, yes, they're in favour of the government's flagship policy, but you could tell they came with that edge 
of get on with it. It reminded me slightly of when I watched my beloved Arsenal play. And when they're flagging, the crowd starts chanting, come on, Arsenal, come on, Arsenal. Yeah, supportive, but it's also saying, get on with it. And, you know, pull your finger out, do better. And that's what that reminded me of. So that was just pressure from another place. And a reminder, as you said, that just as he can't go forward, it's not easy for him to go back either. The key thing, I think, and you've mentioned it, are the polls and how that does change everything. You know, politicians always say when they're asked about opinion polls, the only poll I look at is the one on election day. You know, the only poll that matters is when the voters cast. No, they have a real world effect because for him, the option of pulling the plug is not an option because it just looks so bad for him. And those results suggest that the what we used to call the pro-BB camp would be way below water. I mean, in the 50s, somewhere low 50s, and of course, you have to clear a threshold of 60, 61 to form a government. So there's no option there. The one exception I wonder about, you'll tell me, is your mention of Ben Gvir and when he said, you know, he can fire me if he wants to and so on. It seems to me is an option for him because his his trade is oppositional politics. And there's a type of politician who doesn't want to, in a way, be in government because it's then you're suddenly responsible. Your whole shtick is pointing out where everyone else is going wrong and they're the horrible elites and you're the guy on the outside. Very tough to be the guy on the inside. So I have wondered if he's just looking for an excuse to build his brand in opposition and therefore maybe he's the one person that calculus of these negative poll numbers does not apply to. I mean, that's a good question. I would definitely, he's the one to look at. As you said, he's a classic uh, opposition man and not really a, a coalition man. And, and polls haven't been good for him either, not only for Netanyahu. So yes, you can watch him. And there are a million of scenarios. If there's a, a, a really a deterioration in the security situation in Israel, and he's getting blamed more and more, even more than he is now, will it be in his calculation to say, you know what, I'm breaking up this coalition? Don't forget that then he will be the man who broke apart the most right-wing coalition in the history of Israel. That's not a good position to be in either. But yes, he can be a person to watch. He's an unruly factor. I wouldn't say he's an irrational one. So you should, I mean, he's, he's someone to watch. I just need to say one more thing to you. I mean, when you think of the people who voted for Netanyahu, right? I'm not talking about an extreme person or whatever. Just the middle of the road, middle-aged, middle-income, living in Ashkelon, right? Why did he vote for Netanyahu all these years? For two reasons. Netanyahu was Mr. Economy and Mr. Security. Economy was good. Security relative to the fact that we're living on a powder keg in the middle of the Middle East? Okay. Now, what is happening here, Jonathan? Even before we get to the judicial overhaul, economy, not going to be good news in the next couple of months. Inflation is high. Interest rates are getting higher to fight inflation. We know the story from around the world. Netanyahu is not all to blame for it, but there's not going to be any good news on that in that bracket. Probably not going to be any great news in the security-related brackets. Netanyahu is not getting the call from Washington. He's not getting the call from Riyadh. And when you add to that, again, the middle of the road voter, let's get into his my, his or her mind and say, wait a minute, you already obsessed for four months over this judicial overhaul that maybe hurt the economy, maybe, as I said, could have hurt security because our, our enemies think we're weaker. All of this doesn't spell out a good thing for Netanyahu. I'm not going to make a wild prediction, uh, but I, I think that we might hear, not today, maybe not tomorrow, soon, the, the murmurs of that plea bargain issue coming back to the foreground. We might hear. Again, as the more that he feels stuck, that might return to to our lives. I do wonder, on the same logic you say, that if that that option begins to look more appealing, if he is sort of checkmated or at least stalemated at the moment, there is this paralysis. I think we should move all matters aside and talk to someone that I should admit I've been waiting to talk to on this podcast for a very long time. Our guest this week is the man who few would dispute is one of Britain's greatest novelists and, without any doubt at all, Britain's greatest living Jewish writer, a winner of the Booker Prize for the Finkler question. He's often called the British Philip Roth, though he says he'd rather be known as the Jewish Jane Austen. His acclaimed memoir, Mother's Boy, A Writer's Beginning, is out now in paperback. Howard Jacobson, welcome to Unholy. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you very much for uh, being here. It's such a pleasure. It's lovely. Lovely to be with you both. I'm looking forward to this. 
Um, last week, uh, Israel marked its Independence Day. We talk a lot on this podcast what it means for Israelis, particularly this year. And you have written so much about and spoken about what it means for Jews outside Israel. You have this line that Jonathan likes to quote, uh, saying that Jews look in, at Israel and see a version of themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. It interests me. Whether this will interest anybody else, I don't know. But writers are interested in their own trajectories. And my trajectory into this is is odd, really, because I did not come at Israel the way other Jewish boys came to Israel. Boys of 13 or 14 were joining Habanim. This is from Manchester I'm talking about. Going to Israel, going to Israel with their parents. They had an intense interest in it. I wasn't for it. I wasn't anti it. I just, it was just there. Israel was I tell you what, Israel was collecting boxes. When you went <laughs> on Sunday morning to the Jewish delicatessen to buy the bagels and all that and the usual stuff, there was a collecting box for Israel. So you put, and your parents, whoever you're with, would always get you to put a few shillings in that collecting box. That was that. My parents weren't Zionists. My parents didn't know very much about it. My father only said to me uh, every now and then, Israel is very important because we might need it one day. So I was brought up to the idea, not that Israelis were like me when I saw photographs of Israel or when I saw Israel fighting its Palestinian neighbours on television. I could never tell which was which. She's the, is that the Jordan? Didn't know who to cheer. Is that a Jordanian? Uh, is that an Egyptian? Is that an... I couldn't tell which was which. I've grown to be interested in the fact that they are so like one another because it reminds you that family wars are the bitterest. But I certainly didn't see anybody that looked like me in Israel. And therefore, because I was a selfish boy, um, wrapped up in myself, a solipsistic boy anyway, I didn't see that this was a country that had anything for me, really. Why I had to see me there to want to go there, I don't know, but I didn't. But I grew up simply with a sense that Israel was very important. I supported it. I wanted it to do well. And my dad had said, it's a safety boat. It's what will help us if we ever need it. And I thought that was a good, I, that argument persuaded me. And I think everything changed for me in 1967 when I was in Australia. I was just coming to the end of a period of my first Australian Aliyah, lecturing at Sydney University. And the geographical significance of the 67 war was brought home to me in that the boat I was going to come home in couldn't go the usual way through the Suez Canal, had to go all the way through around Africa. So I was conscious of the fact that my life was finally being affected by Israel. <laughs> and I was fascinated by how many of my friends, some of them very, very hard left-leaning friends in Australia were very for Israel at that moment. Poor little Israel surrounded by all its enemies. And when I got back to England, I think the war had already been won or it was about to be won. It was very exciting. It was very thrilling. I turned on the television and cheered on the Jordanians and the Egyptians <laughs> and, uh, and thought, this is, this is terrific. I wonder if this now is the beginning of peace. What I realized then very quickly, particularly as letters from my left-leaning friends in Australia showed me how quickly they had turned what I learned very quickly was that an Israel that's in trouble is one thing, an Israel that's one is another. And what, mm -hmm. what the non-Jewish world cannot tolerate, I decided then, whether it's true, I don't know, but what it seemed to me to be true then is an Israel that wins anything. An Israel that loses things, a li a poor little Israel is fine. Strong little Israel is not so fine. It's a mirror image that of the things we say now about writing. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to read novels about Jews that were murdered in the Holocaust. Fewer people want to read novels about Jews who are living now. I'll, I'll put this very <laughs> bluntly and cruelly. The world loves a dead Jew. Hmm. A living Jew is tougher to deal with. So I can't remember how, whether this is an answer to your question, but that's the story of how I got there. And then immediately yeah. after the 67 war, I'm watching people's responses to it, that if you, that you are immoral if you win, that you are not allowed to win, that when you win, you forego, you, you, all sympathy is leached from you. That became a very important moment in my thinking about Jewishness, 
which I hadn't thought that much about either, and Israel. And for me, this, so, so for me, the 67 war is when it begins. Mm-hmm. The, um, I mean, you brought us right to where I wanted to go because you and I, Howard, come to this conversation having had a recent exchange on ground that uh, part of which you've written about publicly because the play that I wrote for the Royal Court Theatre in London last autumn based on verbatim interviews called Jews in their own words, you were one of the interviewees for that. And afterwards, you wrote in the Jewish Chronicle that you felt there were things that you had said in our conversation that hadn't made it into the final cut of the play that should have been aired. And I'm I'm quite keen that we seize both of us on this opportunity to air some of those points now, because because they're important. And I think they're very, very interesting. And and I think you've sort of got us to one of them, which is the way that the outside world, as it were, views Israel, the criticism they might make of it, and why it grates on you when Jews outside Israel, when, when confronted with that criticism, say, in effect, look, don't blame me. I've got no responsibility for what Israel does. I live thousands of miles away. And indeed, it's anti-Semitic to hold me to account for what Israel does. Why does that view... And I have to say, I heard it from quite a few of the other interviewees that featured in that verbatim play. Why does that view grate on you? It's never occurred to me to have that kind of feeling. And that's not because I think we're all one great big family. And what I've just said shows that I don't think that. I I, I didn't certainly in those early years look over there and think those are my cousins and my uncles. And even, even though I had cousins and uncles going over there, I didn't feel that. I think it's because that way of thinking about things seems to me to be, it's anti-intellectual. It won't engage with the idea, the important idea of Israel as a, well, as an idea, as a journey in the Jewish mind, as an imaginative, Israel is an imaginative place. I'm not saying it's not a real place. Often when I say that, people go, oh, well, there you are. No wonder you think what you think. You won't talk about it as a real place. I will talk about it as a real place. I've been to see it. I've stayed there. I've seen things with my own eyes that I love and things with my own eyes that shock me. But why I, why I think people, what Jews outside of Israel are wrong to sort of disown it and say, what's it got to do with me? It's because that's as good as saying, what's my history got to do with me? Israel is a staging post. No, I don't mean that. Israel is a, a milestone. Do I mean that? Something like that along our journey. We are on, obviously, we are on a, on a journey. We are on a very long journey and we never stop talking about the journey we've been on and all the milestones of the past. To suddenly not talk, not want to talk about Israel or to feel that Israel has got anything to do with you seems to me to cut your own, your own story off. Because for good or bad, we've been heading here. For good or bad, we've needed to head here. We've thought about here. We've rejected the, by here I'm in Israel. We've rejected the idea. We've longed for the idea. We've sung songs. We've made laments. We've made poetry about being there. To suddenly say this part of being Jewish is not interesting to me means no part of being Jewish is interesting to you. That what does not follow from that is that they must love what they see in Israel. There is no must about it. They mustn't love it. They mustn't hate it. They just must engage with it. So you can't say it's got nothing to do with me. What the other reason you can't say it's got nothing to do with me is it would make as much sense for, I don't like it when Israelis say the world outside Israel has got nothing to do with that. We are bound in something here. And if we feel that to be accused of what some of Israel's enemies see as Israel's cruelties is not fair to us, that's not fair to us, I haven't done it. Well, put it, think of it the other way. For me, Israel is accused of many of the crimes it is accused of, and I believe unfairly accused of, is because it's Jewish. It's Jewish. And because it's Jewish, every Jew, like it or not, carries a baggage, carries a weight of expectation and also a weight of disparagement. Every Jew is to a degree disparaged somewhere. And you won't, no Jew will escape that. And for Israel bears a terrible weight of Jewish disparagement. I'm not saying you and I or any individual Jews are responsible for that disparagement, but we're in this together. Just as 
just as no Israeli can say, well, we're a, we start again and uh, we're a beginning and never mind what happened before. They're mad if they say that because they are, a lot of the burdens that they, that they face and carry are to do with how they were judged before. So I think it's an interlocking thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we, the Jewish people, are to blame for Israel, if you like, for the bad press Israel gets. And I can't work out now what the corollary to that is, but I want to say corollary. So there's a corollary to that. <laughs> Noted. But I, I want to pick up on what you're saying, because, and, and again, you're, you're saying it now, it's also coming across from that uh, Jewish Chronicle article, that you're saying that partly Israel is criticized, not because of what it's actually doing, or it actually does, but because of how Jews are seen and always been seen. So, So is criticism of Israel just a cloaked criticism of Jews as a whole in, in the way that you see it? Or is that a superficial way of, of representing? No, that's, idea? no, that's, you know, I'm prepared to start from there and add on. Mm-hmm. I don't for one moment believe that the most, at least the most savage criticism of Israel is not governed by the way Jews have been seen in the past. And what proves that to me is that the language is the same. Any critic of contemporary Israel who says, I'm not, I'm, I'm not judging Jews. I love Jews. I've done nothing anti-Semitic about this. I'm simply describing what I see. I would say to them, then why are you using the language of medieval Jew hating? Why are you talking about separatism? Why are you talking about Jews as people who murder children? Why are you describing the contemporary Israeli Jew in exactly the same language that a, a citizen of Central Europe 500 years ago would have described the Jew? Had people in, in, in Germany and France and here even in, in the year 1400 been asked the question, in 500 years there will be a country and it will be a Jewish country, and it will be run by Jews. Tell me what you think it would be like. They'd have described exactly the way an anti-Zionist today describes it, with all the old the old descriptions of the hated Jew at the front. So I think that. I also think, while we're talking about criticism, this has got to be said. One of the most wearisome arguments that's put forward is that Jews will complain of anti-Semitism in order to silence criticism of Israel. I feel if I ever hear that one more time, this has been dealt with and dealt with and dealt with. It might be that somewhere out there, there is a particular Jew who cannot bear, who believes that anything that's said about Israel is anti-Semitic. It might be that there's the odd one. Most responsible Jews who would say, the way you describe Israel currently makes me believe you are anti-Semitic. Most responsible Jews would not say that in order to silence the criticism. A, if they've been trying to silence criticism, they've done a very bad job because Israel must be the most criticized country in the world. Well, must, must be, obviously is the most criticized country in the world. So, so criticized is Israel that you can, that the two phrases go together, Israel and criticism. You can't talk about Israel without the, the criticism of Israel. But what do we mean when we talk about criticism? I mean, a criticism of Israel would be, I don't think Israel is a very nice place. That's a criticism. Another criticism of Israel is it's a colonial enterprise run by bloodthirsty savages. That's another criticism. Are we to assume that these criticisms mean the same? That we feel, if we agree that people have a right to say, I don't like Israel very much, Food, I don't like the food, and I find the people a bit rude, and the taxi drivers aren't very nice. People want to say that. That's fine. The person who says that is not necessarily an anti-Semite. But the person who describes is the person whose criticism goes way beyond that, but they still think it's called criticism and wishes to describe it in the language of medieval Jew hatred. Jew hatred, that person's criticism is not legitimate or allowable or whatever else you want to call it in the way that... Israel is not a very nice place to live in because the taxi drivers are rude to you is. So you can't, we cannot, we cannot any longer, I think, go on allowing that word criticism to just pass. I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm just being critical of Israel. Well, let's have a look at what you're being critical of Israel amounts to. What is it? What, what about the person who doesn't fit either of the two categories in a way you've been describing? So not, as it were, the non-Jewish outsider and nor the Jewish person who says the entire project has nothing to do with me. I'm not not interested in it. But rather the person says, I absolutely see it as you do as a crucial stage in the Jewish people's development, born from 
a very hopeful ideal, but says this policy, that action by this government, yeah, that has got nothing to do with me. I didn't have a vote on it. And I, therefore, for you, the critic, to hold me, the Jew in Finchley or Glasgow or Manchester, responsible for what the government of the day has done, I'm not somehow disavowing part of my tradition or identity or history to say, yeah, that has nothing to do with me. And to blame me for it is equivalent and as and as unacceptable as, say, blaming a Muslim for, you know, the beheaders in Saudi Arabia or the regime in Iran or so, and so on. Yes, or blaming or blaming me for Boris Johnson. I completely take I completely take that. We are none of us responsible for the actions of our particular governments at any particular time. And we're right to Except when except, except when that I put that to you or rather in the Jewish Chronicle thing, you came back and said, Yeah, but that's to concede the libel if you make that move. You're not conceding the libel if you think this particular government, that particular administration, this particular politician is not acting in the way you would like them to. That doesn't concede the libel. What concedes the libel is, is if you say, yes, it is indeed an inherently racist enterprise. It was an, an uh, it was a colonial enterprise from the start. This is indeed a country that practices apartheid and genocide and all the rest of it. That's to concede the libel. I would never have said that the concede that you're conceding the libel if, if you don't agree with Netanyahu. I'm, I'm continuing this this conversation because, you know, one of the things you also say about Israel is, and you said this recently, I think it was a Jewish book week, you said with so much anticipation of failure on the part of its foes and so much dissension among its friends, this one wanting a religious state, that one wanting a secular state, it is a miracle that Israel succeeded to any degree at all. That's a very generous reading of Israel. It kind of echoed to me what Amos Oz wrote in, in um, A Tale of Love and Darkness, that a dream realized will always in a way disappoint you. That word disappointment is very operative. When you discuss Israel and with others discuss it, is that where we fail, you think, in that gap between, we Israelis, in that gap between what is imagined and what is realized? Well, everybody fails in one way or another. <laughs> that's the gap of failure. That's where we all are. That's what being a human being is, I think. But because of that, and because we should be armed with that knowledge, we shouldn't be surprised when things go wrong. We shouldn't be surprised that Israel does not live up to some of the dreams and aspirations that the early Zionists had. Nothing was ever mm -hmm. going to live up to that. It was, it was too hopeful. Nothing ever does. Is there a single country anywhere that's lived up to the dreams of its most idealistic founders? So what we should feel about that is the tragedy of that disappointment, the sheer, the unbearable sadness of it, the pity of it. Oh, the pity of it, Iyaga. What could have been? What could have been? What might have been? What should have been? Who knows what might yet still somehow or other, if this happens or if that happens, yet be? That sadness is the sadness I think of a, and I wrote another piece talking about the tragic sense uh, as opposed to the religious sense. The critic George Steiner talking about tragedy in that way of his said that the that, that tragedy is inimical to the Jewish faith, as indeed it is to the Christian faith, as indeed as it is to the Muslim faith. Tragedy is inimical to faith-based civilizations because they can't accept that a thing might happen for just no reason. If you believe that God is looking after you, that God will give you this, there are Israelis who believe that God promised them this country and will give it to them. There are Palestinians who believe that God gave them that this country and will give it to them. How do you solve that? How do you ever sort, unless you can get the two gods to sit down and have a game mm. of poker? How do, you can't. And you're not being able to is in the nature of the tragedy. Mm. If we could just get all parties to this, to accept the way tragedy works, that we don't get what we want, that we don't get what we think we have a right to, that in the end we have to concede and lose things, that it is all terribly, terribly, terribly sad. When Amos Oz, who was a tragedian to his, as is David Grossman, tragedians to their bones, when they talk, particularly when Amos Oz talks about there are two rights, that's a tragic idea that this party is right and that party is right. Where'd you go then? When he grew much gloomier, he said, this person is wrong and that person is wrong. The conflict of two rights, the conflict of two wrongs, it's the same idea except one's getting much more 
bitter than than the other. But that is a, that's a tragic view of how life works. The politically minded person who demonstrates on the street, nobody who believes in tragedy demonstrates on the streets. Hmm. Whether people would have demonstrated on the on the streets of Troy, I don't know. But you, the minute you p- put a placard in your hand, you've forgone the truth of tragedy. The person who carries a placard is blaming somebody. Somebody is at fault. What if we were to say that the whole, that insofar as things have gone badly wrong, and some some things have gone badly wrong, just as some things have gone right, but some things have gone have gone badly wrong. Why can't we accept the tragic view is that that is not necessarily anybody's fault? There'll be faults along the line. That is just what's happened. With the best intentions, this went wrong. Things don't go wrong always, or maybe ever. Sometimes, of course, they do. Things don't always go wrong because someone wants them to go wrong or because somebody is guided, some party, some government, some nation is guided by malice. Sometimes with the best will in the world, you do the wrong thing, you make the wrong, and you can't say that. In a, there's no room for that on a placard. I'm a bit worried about this, but I want to say this. And as Aristophanes said, and there's no room for that. And the minute you, the minute you are playing both sides, the minute both sides play the blame game, it's like the difference between art and all the, the, all that discourse that is not art. In the discourse that is not art, the lower discourse that we speak, that we address from the lower part of our natures, where we judge people and imprison them and curse them and never want to talk to them again. We lose out on that's not tragedy. What what determines our day-to-day municipal lives is not tragedy. And we need art badly because in art we understand the tragedy of things, that we are not dealing here with good people and bad people or even right and wrong, the, the tyranny of morality. We can throw off the shackles of morality in, in art. And really what one wants when thinking about Israel, I think, is one wants to think about it like art as artists think about and that's why for me, I'm going to say that aren't I, but that's why for me, the really very best thinkers about Israel have been the artists, have been Yehoshua, have been Amos Oz, have been Grossman. When you read them, you feel the whole tragedy, the, the whole drama of being an Israeli. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm wittering now. Stop me. Not at all. No, <laughs> I, I think the word, the idea of tragedy is incredibly applicable here when you're looking at the conflict and the idea of, as Amos has put it, of a clash of two rights. And you late, uh, rightly say, he would later say a clash of two wrongs. But you also, I think, think that there's something at least sad, if not fully tragic, of Israel falling short of its original very noble ideas. And you invite people to feel grief for that rather than to feel censure. And I get why Jews would feel that, that there would be, you'd look at the idealism of the founding of Israel, you'd look at the reality and you would feel a kind of sorrow. But I just wonder if it's demanding too much of people outside us to feel that. If they see, for example, the occupation, they just are going to condemn the occupation. They're not just going to, they're going to condemn that rather than thinking, I'm not, you know, far from being judgmental. It's just a terribly sad thing that this country didn't fulfill its original noble aspirations. But a bit, you know, so that's my observation on it. But my question would be, what, because you've talked about this too, why is it so, it's so important that people understand that Israel from conception was an idealistic, hopeful cause rather than to use a phrase that was in circulation in this country a while back, a racist endeavor, a colonial enterprise. Why does that issue matter now, the sort of judgment people have of the origin story? Well, it matters It matters for how we feel about Israel. It is a libel to say of Israel that it was abovo. From the very, very start, it had ma- malicious, rapacious, greedy intentions towards its neighbors. That maligns Israel, it seems to me. But it does more than malign Israel. It maligns Jews. Because if if you understand Zionism as a complex of many, many necessities, imperatives, longings, yearnings, dreams, and it was all those things. It was something that could appeal to George Eliot vaguely as some spirit, some need for some spiritual regeneration. And there were plenty of Zionists at the time who said, 
spiritual regeneration, smegeneration. We've got, you know, we're in danger here. There was, it was, and there were others who said it goes way beyond anything George Eliot could have imagined and so on. If you don't accept that these were the animates, these were some of the conflicting but animating principles that went into the creation of Israel. If you don't accept that it was an important part of being Jewish, uh, of the Jewish mind, of the Jewish soul, as well as Jewish practical necessity. If you refuse to accept that, then you, you, you're on the way to denying Jews had a soul. Or you're saying that the Jewish soul was already bent. It was crooked. And when somebody said, and it was Jeremy Corbyn, wasn't it, who, who more or less sacrificed his career on needing to say, needing to go out, he will say that with his dying breath. I've got one more thing to say. Israel was from the start. It was from the start. He has to say, why does he have to say it? Because if he can't say Israel was from the start, a wicked enterprise, a tarnished enterprise, then he's got to concede something about the Jews that I think he can't bear to. So it matters, I think, enormously that we get this. There is no right. Of course, there is no right. One person Zionist is not like another person Zionist. It's a chorus. It's a huge, it's an orchestral arrangement of voices that goes into Zionism. Anybody who thinks they know what Zionism is or so on. So the anti-Zionist doesn't even know what he's talking about or she is talking about. They are talking about a multitude of voices that argued themselves, some of them just as vociferously as a modern anti-Zionist did. There were anti-Zionists even among those who were Zionist, who saw what could go wrong, who foretold it, who dreaded it, who didn't like how we might appear, didn't like how we would act, didn't like how, we'd, how it would redound against us. They saw all that. And to deny them that is to deny the complexity, the magnanimity, the imaginativeness of the Jew. It is a terrible libel. So when Jeremy Corbyn and others wanted to say that about Israel was from the start a colonial enterprise, that is a massive insult, Jews. I have to ask a little bit about, I had another question about Israel, but I want to get to the book and the Jewish aspect of it, like everything else you write, you describe at the beginning that you tell your mother I think it, it is your last conversation with her. She's 97 years old. You talk about the memoir. She asks, is it a good idea? You say, probably not. And you talk about the fact that you published your first book after the age of 40. And you say to her, if it was Jewish, being Jewish that held me back, it was being Jewish that got me going. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I can talk too much, far too much about that. <laughs> Please do. I was, in a, I was a fairly a classic case of a Jew not in flight from being Jewish, but almost in flight from being Jewish. I didn't want to, I would never deny I was Jewish. I never thought of changing my name. I never thought of buying a horse and, and going to, ah. and, and going to, to live with the aristocracy in Cheshire. It was never as bad as that, but I thought the movement, the, the, the idea of myself that I have is not, is not simply of being, I'm Jewish. I am incidentally Jewish. No, I'm more than incidentally Jewish, but I'm lots of other things as well. And to stress the Jewishness, as many of my friends, many of my school friends did, would, for me, the word for what I feared was parochial. It wasn't the religiousness of the Jew, though I had no religiousness of that kind in my body, and I was not brought up to have any. My parents didn't. Manchester Jewishness in the 1940s and 50s was a wonderful secular place. Nobody was very religious then. Nobody was very, very religious, just felt odd. But you were a bit, you were a bit conscious of it. But what we were was parochial. To be a Manchester Jew was to be... It was a small little corner of it was a, it was something you needed to get away from to live a larger life. And I was carried by my parents. Go to an English university. Think about make your way in this wonderful country and be free of all that. It was a sense of all that. And yet the minute any one of us, I had, I was one of three children. The minute any one of us looked as though we were moving a little bit too far away from that, then all hell broke loose. And the way we could break loose in our mind, we could read what we wanted and think what we wanted, but we couldn't marry. 
who we wanted. Hmm. The marrying out that remained the great in this, it was, it was extraordinary to see and to think about still in this really lovely, I think, open, I idealize it, sunny, sunny, secular Jewish world in which I think of all the Jews as wearing shorts and going hiking on the Pennines, <laughs> which it could have been like that. Suddenly, the minute we found ourselves a spouse, we were back, if you like, almost in the ghetto. My, for me, being a writer meant not being, very much not being in the ghetto, not particularly writing about Jewish things. I was reading books by non-Jews and loving loving those. I'd read hardly any books by Jews. There were odd books in the house that were written by Jews and they were not interesting to me. There was a book by Cecil Roth on why I am a Jew or something. I don't think I opened that. It was on my, my mother had bought it for some reason, but my mother had also bought D.H. Lawrence and I opened that. And it was, I wanted to be an Englishman. Not because I, did I want to be an Englishman? I wanted to be away from the small cares of northern provincial Jewish life. I wanted to be away from those. And when I tried to write, I wrote without thinking about this, not even wanting to think about the small cares of provincial Jewish life. I didn't want to write a Jewish book. As a consequence of that, I wrote nothing. I wrote nothing because I was trying to write. I did not know what about. I was trying to write in hiding. I don't say everybody must be themselves and only write about what you know. The best writing is often about what you don't know. But you're very, very hard mm. to write in hiding. And it was only when I was forced out of hiding that I realized for the book that I now realized I had to write, which was a book of desperation. I was getting old. If I didn't write soon, it would be all over. I kept a list of how old every novelist was when they wrote their first book, and I was older than them all now. There was almost none left. I thought, if I don't do it now, and that sense of desperation and that sense of of folly too, that I'd messed around and didn't know where I was and wanted to be somebody that I wasn't, informed the book and meant that the book I was writing was much more satirical and much more even self-loathing at some moments. It was my first book had quite a lot of self-loathing in it. And it was only when I realized sort of mid this book that what I was describing was part, that the person who was feeling all those things had to be Jewish I had to write Jewish after all to express the bitterness and disappointment that I was feeling. The Jewishness I'd tried to hide from had come and had bitten me. And it bitten me and it meant that the only way I was going to write now was with those, I was going to say toxicities, but they weren't toxicities. They were virtues. They were many virtues, but I had to finally acknowledge them. So it was Jewishness that stopped me and it was Jewishness that started me. Sorry, that was a long answer to a, a no, nice, short, direct question. <laughs> <laughs> but once you had done it, and it is just to brilliant comic effect, and it's, I mean, I remember the first time reading it, the sense of recognition and laughter out loud and kind of relief reading it coming from behind. It's such a brilliant book. But the, why, why did you keep doing it? I mean, in other words, you could have said, okay, I've got that out of my system. I've come out, out of hiding. But instead, you know, I'm almost sounding like one of our parents, you know, you couldn't leave it alone. You keep coming back to it. I couldn't leave it alone. I'd open the gates. And um, if I was to describe what it is to have a Jewish imagination, I would say it is partly obsessive. It's a form of intellectual OCD, rubbing away at a spot all the time. I also wanted to see how much more I could do with it. How far could I take it? How outrageous could I be with it? How much more funny could I be with it? And then how, when it stops being funny, as it's, as it sometimes does and must, how, when it becomes tragic, what could I do with it? And then there were moments when I certainly felt I'd, tra I'd now, the thing I'd run away from, I'd now trap myself full of irony is this, I was now trapped in it and did occasionally try to write out of it. This time I would say, I'm not right. I would say that I'm not writing a Jew. I remember clearly saying to my wife, this new novel I'm writing now is absolutely not a Jewish novel. And she said, well, why is it called Jaime Rosenberg? And why, why does he sell handbags on the market? Like, Damn, yes, he's got, got me. I did occasionally, I did occasionally, I've just finished a novel which has, doesn't have the J word in it and there's nothing Jewish in it. But I remember writing one, the music critic Norman Lebrecht, who is a very clever fellow, emailed me once after a novel that I thought was entirely un-Jewish. We'd run into each other in the street. What are you doing? I told him, I've written this entirely on Jewish book. I'm going to get it. I'm going to read it. He emailed me. 
He said, you haven't, you know. He said, there is certain, <laughs> for example, there's this scene where you describe walking through a field. There you are walking through a field to all intents and purposes, the Englishman that you never thought you could be and you think you are now, and you're describing the bells coming from a church. He said, I can't think of any writer who's ever made church bells sound so, so alien, so absolutely alien. To them. You could know from that that you've, you know, you've not escaped Jewishness. You will never escape Jewishness. And my advice to you, Haim, is not even to try. <laughs> There's a, there are so many great moments like that in, in this book. In, in which you have a conversation with your girlfriend who will become your, your second wife. She is not uh, Jewish. And you answer, you explain to her why you're sitting suited on the sofa and prepared. You never sit back and you say, you have to make a run for it at a, at a moment's notice. That's how you were raised. And she says, you think there are no Nazis in Northampton. You said there are Nazis everywhere. And I, you know, you can't not relate to that being Jewish. I think it's kind of in our DNA to think, there are Nazis everywhere, and it, we should pick up something at a moment's notice if need be. I just thought to myself, do we then continue this and impart this to our children as well? Is that a good thing? Is Do we have a choice in the matter? I mean, this is just being the Jewish mother here in this conversation and asking myself that. I mean, yes, and there were many, I mean, it's been a criticism leveled at me throughout my throughout my career now that I am, you know, obsessively repeating something that I should have grown out of and that it's, you know, not really healthy to be like that. I don't know, I suppose, to take on, I suppose to take on those aspects of being Jewish, which are, you could say, anxious. Um, let's just say anxious, let's not Good. say frightened, but certainly not comfortable is, should we get rid of that? I mean, isn't the whole, one of the points of Israel, one of the things that you come to love about Israel when you can talk about Israel as a place where Jews are and living a life and not talk about it as a, as a battleground or talk about the occupation. I missed the opportunity to talk to Jonathan about the occupation because he and I have had an argument about this before. I think you load the dice, Jonathan, when you call it an occupation. I think you should not call it an occupation because the minute, sorry, I've just, this is a digression. Move that bit there. Mm -hmm. Now we're moving to back to the odds. The minute you call it an occupation, people have a picture. And the picture people have is of the sky full of Israeli planes and Israelis jump. No, no one knows where they've come from. Can't imagine where they've come from. They've come from anti-Semitic, that land of anti-Semitic terror. And from this land of anti-Semitic terror and hell, descend Israeli paratroopers who've who don't know where they are, descend upon the Palestinian people. That's the occupation. When you say occupation, you make it sound like that. And that's why I never like to use that word because of what it echoes, because of what it suggests. What else would I use? That's another question. Um, I can see why anybody might say this is not a natural, normal, healthful way to live. Uh, I can see that. To which my answer is, show me a normal, healthy, proper way to live. Show me who's got it. Who would I aspire to look like if not like this? Yes, it's like Woody Allen and we all got a bit bored with the Woody Allen shtick of the schlemiel. And I'm aware of that. And I've over schlemieled it in my books and I've over schlemieled it in life. But I like it. The trouble is, I really like it. I think the schlemiel is a wonderful, wonderful character. The greatest... The greatest Jewish character in literature, I think, is Leopold Bloom in, in James Joyce's Ulysses. It's a wonderful, wonderful creation. What James Joyce saw in Leopold Bloom is itself fascinating and a study in itself. But what James Joyce saw was that here is the perfect hero for a novel. The perfect hero for a novel. And he's somebody to whom things are done. He's a receiver of experience. And therefore, much more will happen in his life. He has got much more to talk about than a doer. A superman who wins, a man whose wife adores him, a man around whom women flock, a man who earns a fortune, a man who does not get pushed around by his friends. That's a dullard. That's, and the opposite to that is the Schlemiel-y Leopold Bloom invented by James Joyce. I said the other day, talking to somebody, that he was one of his early jobs was he sold blotting paper. And the person to whom I was talking, that, that's how the world has changed, did not know what blotting paper was, had never encountered blotting. Maybe you don't know what blotting paper is. Maybe you are too young to know what blotting paper 
because you've never had to blot anything because we live in a world without wet ink and blot. But a blot, but blotting paper with which you dry the wet ink on a, on, on a page is a wonderful idea for Leopold Blue because it's absorbent. Blotting paper takes things into itself. And Leopold Bloom is the great, the quintessential Jewish hero, but also the quintessential hero. You don't get a better hero. Somebody to whom everything happens. Somebody on whom, to use the famous Henry James phrase, nothing is lost. Nothing is lost because everything is experienced and everything is suffered. And is a shlemiel. We're talking a lot about Israel. And this podcast that we've been doing now, you are, uh, this episode is our 103rd, was all about the conversation, is, is all about the conversation between Israel and diaspora. And, you know, I could listen to you two talking about Israel and how you view Israel and the Israel in your mind and the Israel in reality. I wonder, Howard, have you, how you think of the conversation between all three of us. How can Israeli Jews be part of that conversation, if at all? Well, I think you've done quite well. I think you've been, <laughs> I think you've been here. I've been conscious of you being here. I've seen this as a tripartite conversation. I sometimes do think that, um, Israeli Jews are a little quick to write off the Jewish diaspora experience. My books were not for a long, long time read in Israel. They didn't want to know. I don't know how much they want to know now, to tell you the truth. And they didn't want to know. And when I talked to Israelis about this, and I'd say, could you do me a favor? I'm reading you. Why aren't you reading me? And the answer was, it's not an interest. That's your, your problem. Those are not problems. You haven't got problems. Never occurred to me. I was actually writing about, but you don't read in order, to, in order to, to encounter problems. But that was what made my life, not my writing, which is different, but that was what made my life and what they therefore thought I wrote about uninteresting to them. And I don't doubt now that, that uh, many an Israeli who's just heard what I've just said about Woody Allen, um, James Joyce, the Shlemiel and me would think, we've, but we've done Shlemiels. But the thing is, you've never done Shlemiels. The wonderful thing is about even, you know, no matter how successful and powerful and confident a country you are, there's always the part of you that's, that can laugh at yourself, that finds yourself absurd, that practices a life of comedy that is, that sees your, if you're a man, your masculinity as an absurd thing, a grand thing sometimes, but also an absurd thing. And if you can't see yourself as a bit absurd sometimes, then you are an impoverished person. Then I think, I forget how this sentence begins, but it does seem to me that this is an in indispensable part of being human. And Jews do it very, we are very, very good at it, because we can make jokes about ourselves better than anybody. We've had to make jokes about ourselves. It's been our survival, a very successful survival technique, because what we really are saying is, you can shoot us down, you can lock us on trains, you can beat us. But we can be crueler about ourselves than you ever can, because we're clever. <laughs> and all that does, of course, is make them hate you more and beat you more. But nonetheless, on the way to doing that, we have the satisfaction of our, we've acquired our cleverness and our sense of humor as a strategy to survive. And look, we survive. Howard Jacobson, the book is called Mother's Boy, A Writer's Beginnings. Thank you so much for talking to us on Unholy. Thank you. What fun. Thank you both very much. Thank you. I could have gone on with that conversation. <laughs> like I, I think I would have loved to hear Howard Jacobson talk more about writing and about his Jewish mother and about anything else he'd like to talk about. Like, we have to have him on again. We have to admit that ever since we started this podcast, which is uh, soon to be two and a half years, I have said to you, please bring Howard. You have, and not always in whispers. Uh, you've always you've <laughs> sometimes always wanted with him on. Uh, yelling, sometimes with sometimes. I always wanted him on. I always no, wanted it him was on. it was ideal, and he is such a brilliant speaker. I mean, there are brilliant writers who you know talk well, and there are people who talk well who uh, talk brilliantly, but are okay writers. 
he is so unusual because he writes brilliantly, but he also speaks brilliantly. I mean, if speaking, if talking was an Olympic sport, you know, <laughs> he would be a gold medalist because he speaks in these perfectly formed paragraphs, the turn of phrase, the structure of every thought. Anyway, it is a joy to listen to him on, 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 on any subject. And even when he and I disagree, you know, to be criticised by him feels like a compliment, just because <laughs> I know what you mean. he writes and speaks so eloquently. So, and, and fantastically grateful to have had Howard Jacobson. On and the I, you know, that probably talks about uh, to me like that part where he talks about Ju his Jewishness being the thing that held him back. He published his first uh, novel at the age of forty, and then the thing that pushed him forward, that catapulted him. In. It's just a, this beautiful moment. And it kind of reminded me that that conversation that we had with Nicole Krauss, episode 74, I'd urge you to listen to it if you haven't. But and she talked about, we asked her if her being Jewish is a burden or a gift. And she said, the burden is the gift. And in a sense, that's what he said too. Like that the minute he realized his, you know, that being Jewish is such a prominent part of his character and his life, that is what he used to, to uh, write um, it's beautiful. I told him before we started recording, I'm his biggest fan in Israel. He said, I'm his only fan. That is probably not true. I just want to say to Israeli publishers, only three of his books were translated into Hebrew. That is, you know, that should be fixed, is all I'm saying. Like, you have to read him. And memo from Yonit, and you know when Yonit asks, you listen. So that's the <laughs> message to the Israeli publishing uh, industry. Uh, he wrote 21 books. You can translate a few more. Is awesome. I mean, you know, the... Well, there were a whole lot of us who thought he should have won the Booker Prize long before he long eventually won before. it. And right. so, you know, for question. Kaluki Nights, which I, th oh, I can't remember if it was shortlisted or not, but it certainly should have won. And, uh, you know, there are many, many of his books. And people ask you what you should recommend. I think Coming From Behind is one of those books that you can laugh and one, cry yeah. out loud, his first one. I think The Mighty Waltzer is is gentle and warm and wonderful. And there's just really his, his and I mentioned Kaluki Nights. And they his are, latest one, the memoir is beautiful. Mother's Boy is a beautiful I was going to say, I think if you're looking for one to start, in a way you could start with the memoir. And um, mm -hmm. anyway, so much brilliant writing in there. If you haven't read him, you have that joy to look forward to. So lucky you. Um, <laughs> we have awards to hand out. Yonit. We do. I would uh, gently uh, try to nominate. You know, it's summer and things are, at least here it's summer, and things are getting warmer. And so I think it's uh, the right time to skate on thin ice and to nominate a certain British newspaper that uh, this week published a cartoon. I should say The Guardian already, right? I'm sorry. I'm going to say it quietly. Uh, published a cartoon of the BBC chairman, uh, actually that resigned, uh, Richard Sharp. It's a whole story, a scandal about Boris Johnson. That's beside the point. A cartoon of him, which is difficult to see or to unsee anti-Semitic uh, tropes in that cartoon. Money, the sort of squid with the tentacles, um, other things and sinister appearances. In any case, uh, we should say that The Guardian did take down the cartoon and did apologize and did also publish a very, very smart piece by uh, Dave Rich, who was also on this podcast, who spent his uh, life combating anti-Semitism, episode 98, by the way. And that is it. I um, will leave the floor to you. What yeah, my, no, as you my say. My favorite columnist of The Guardian. Yeah, no, as you say, um, the Guardian did apologize for it, removed it really very swiftly. There have been, you know, no attempts to defend or excuse it. Just it's it's now gone. And people should go and read that really good piece by Dave Rich, which sort of deconstructs the, you know, symbols and images there. And also the Guardian's own reader's editor, Elizabeth Ribbons, wrote a piece about how it happened in the headline, an image that should never have been published and lessons that must be learned. That office, by the way, reader's editor, is worth noting because she's it's very interesting she's constitutionally independent of the editor and of everyone else so she's able to give her own judgment and there says the guardian got it wrong so you know i do recommend people look at both those pieces as for mensch you will know your need and i think long-time listeners know that uh i'm not part of the star wars community never was saw the first film age 10 never really got interested in the others I know you probably are a fan. I think this is our, we're back to our nerd geek thing. Um, never does it for me. Nevertheless, as you and I recorded is May the 4th. And so that is become a sort of Star Wars day as in May the 4th be with you. Ho, ho. But <laughs> even I, as a Star Wars skeptic, did notice on social media and, you know, chuckled lightly 
at this rather brilliant piece of work that somebody has done, which is to make a trailer for the Star Wars movies in the style of Wes Anderson, with these very particular still shots and sort of close-ups and very square framing, and where the camera just sort of moves suddenly upward just to get the picture completely in the frame. It's a very specific style, which, even if you're not a Wes Anderson fan, you will then recognise is his style. And who I don't know who made that. It's gone kind of viral. Whoever did that, for brightening rather the day of even a Star Wars sceptic like me, <laughs> I'm happy to give Mark May the fourth be with you day by um, saying you can be our honorary mensch for this week. I am worried because I think that the uh, images were uh, generated by an AI, actually. So we gave our mensch. Oh so in God. the in the spirit of everyone talking about AI, we gave our mensch award to an AI who generated that ge- that generated this these oh, images. No. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, that is uh, what it is. Oh, that is. So when um, I said I don't know who did it, that's why. Oh no. We so mm-hmm. we've actually created a robot mensch. <laughs> this is the see. You know, people are worried about Humanity the next is stage lost. of the AI. Earth is, the Earth is doomed. We're done. Yeah, okay, we're we, done. We gave okay. a mensch award to an AI. We're done. Um, I'll just add to that the real people at the uh, at the uh, space station, the European space station. I think uh, astronauts who are celebrating May the Fourth in uh, you know the traditional garb of <laughs> Darth Vader and Princess Leia. So that's uh, nice too. I'm just asking myself: you're a Star Wars skeptic, you're a monarchy skeptic. I see a connection here. I really do. We can't leave without my mention of the week honorary mention to our very own own, uh, Jonathan Friedland, who, we should say, hit the New York bestseller list with his book, The Escape Artist, and we're very proud of him. And if you want to listen to Jonathan talk about The Escape Artist, episode 62? 62. Yes, I'm oh, right about You that. are very kind. Um, it was a very lovely surprise. Yes, it is. It's there. I mean, I had no idea it was coming. Suddenly got a message from my agent uh, saying, look at this. And there it was. It's number four on the bestseller list. So astonishing. Oh. Total surprise to me and thrilled. So thanks Amazing. to everyone who's bought it and is reading it. Thank you. And um, and also, I discovered this week that you are an advisor on the very on the hit show, not the uh, Netflix a matchmaking show, but the, rather the Netflix The Diplomat show. Also there. I saw your name. Well, exciting. it's true. If you if you watch the credits all the way through, you know, because it gives you that choice of next episode, continue watching or watch credits. I don't know how many people hit the watch credits button, but if you do, and if you make sure not to blink, right towards the end, there's a little <laughs> mention of um, three or four people who are consultants on the show. And because it's about Britain and America, because, of course, the central character is a newly appointed US ambassador in London, did want to run various things past me and various storylines and things and it was great fun and the show is great if you fancy it the diplomat on netflix so yes that was a very very fun thing to do in the last well it started actually i got that call right in the very early days of lockdown so and here we are nearly three years later very cool anyway we're saying thank yous to gaia glazer romatic omer primat and yair bashan this is usually your line, but I know you're excited about being a no- nominated as a mention, so I'm going to say it. <laughs> we are very welcome to rate us and check out our Instagram and Facebook pages, Unholy Podcast. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. We shall. Looking forward to see you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.